0: I want to tell you my secret now. I see dead people. Silent Green is people! Need <laughs> my sister and my daughter! Rosebud.
1: What's in the box? Hello? And thank you for joining us for this spoiler special for John Wick, Chapter Three Parallelum. I am Sam Adams, Senior Editor at Slate, and joining me are Forrest Wickman, Slate's Culture Editor. Hey, Sam. And Matthew Desim, who is the Nights and Weekends Editor of Browbeat. Hello. Uh, welcome, Team Culture. Um, <laughs> so, we are going to talk about John Wick Three today. Normally, this is the part of the podcast where um, I summarize the plot of the movie. In this case, that is people are trying to kill. John Wick, and he kills them. And one of the the features of these movies, which has become increasingly apparent as we get you know further into the series and people get more the hang of it, is they're really they are just kind of machines to string together a bunch of generally pretty amazing action sequences, and that is uh, very much true in this case. This movie starts. I think uh, six minutes after the end of the last one, something that is essentially (laughs) continuous. John Wick was given an hour after killing someone on the grounds of the hotel, the Continental, which is sort of like a neutral zone for this international coven of assassins. He's broken this cardinal rule of this place. He is given one hour to get clear before he is excommunicado, and basically every assassin in the world will be after him. Um, and so we we start off with a, a, the clock ticking in about 56 minutes and him uh, running away from it. Before we get into spoiling what, what plot there is in this movie, Forrest and Matt, what's your position on the John Wick series thus far going into part three?
0: Yeah, I reviewed the first one for Slate and really loved it. And it was it kind of came out of nowhere and people were kind of shocked at how smart and funny this new Keanu Reeves movie was. I mean, Keanu had been coming off a sort of low point in his career, I guess. And then I, I've i generally really loved these movies ever since while also feeling slightly queasy about them. I mean, they're extremely violent and I have uh, a sort of limited stomach for that. And they're also like extremely fetishizing of violence and specifically of guns. But they're also very funny and I think work best for me as a comedy. And this was maybe my favorite one. I'm not sure where you would rank them, Decim. I believe you reviewed the second John Wick for Slate.
2: Yeah, I I, uh, I loved the first one, too, for the same reasons you're talking about. The second one I found, like, I, I liked it and there are some very, like, smart and well executed things in it but i just found it uh, the violence got a little tedious in that one this one i loved i uh i thought was great um i mean as you say i have some qualms too about the guns and, and and so on but i yeah i thought it played more as like a slapstick kind of thing this time around and um I like it a lot.
1: Yeah, and imp- an important thing to say, to point out for listeners who uh, may be coming into the series with part three, and I should say, although the, on the one hand it has this fairly sort of complicated and ornate mythology, right. very little of that is necessary to understanding um, what's going on with the plot, so you can really feel free to jump in at any point. This is not something where you really need to have seen John Wick's one and two to get what's going on in this one, which again is he's trying to kill people, they're trying to yeah. kill him. And I would even add that like, if you've seen the previous, Two movies. I mean, maybe I just don't
0: remember them that well, but like all of the mythology of these various tokens and stuff, it, a lot of it feels like they're kind of making it up as they go. Like, in other words, even if you've seen the previous two movies, I'm not sure exactly how much sense it makes. <laughs>
1: Right. I mean, I think the only important thing to know about the series is, you know, as you mentioned, Forrest, Keanu kind of hadn't really done a major movie really since the end of the Matrix sequels in in 2003. And this series came out of the uh, co-director of the first movie and the director of the second two is Chad Stahelski, who was a stunt coordinator and before that a a stunt um, performer who was Keanu's stunt double on the Matrix trilogy. And he moved into directing with this franchise, And he's someone who, I mean, I think, among other things, really appreciates Keanu Reeves' strengths primarily as a physical actor. I mean, there's very little dialogue in these movies and really very little need for it. That is sort of the the beauty of them. And I think that has to do very much with their attitude towards violence in this one. There's a a subplot in this one, which perhaps we'll get to later, but that involves Angelic Houston as this sort of gang leader slash, you know, ballet impresario. Um, And they really do, I mean, they do approach, you know, violence very much as dance, as this kind of thing in, in, you know, physical movement. It reminds me of um, the, the sort of famous Jean-Luc Godard quote about um, how someone said, you know, that when one of his movies, there was a lot of blood and he said, that's not blood, that's red. So I think you have to (laughs) kind of approach these movies in that spirit. It was it was interesting for me seeing this movie with, it was a preview screening, but there was an audience for it. And when we get to kind of the first of the movie's major kills, which we'll talk about in just a sec, the audience was giving me this kind of like, yeah, reaction. And I was, and that actually struck me as weird because I was, as you said for it, I was laughing yeah. at it because it's just, I mean, it is very self-consciously silly and ridiculous. And I, I think that's, I heard from somebody who like sat, you know, a couple rows behind Keanu Reeves at the uh, premiere of this movie. And and he was laughing, too. And I really think that's um, maybe sort of dodging a moral bullet by not taking the killing seriously. But I think that, um, you know, appreciating this as kind of a sort of very bloody, deadly slapstick comedy is kind of the way to go.
0: Yeah. Um, And I mean, I mean, that's I think the other level. On which, in these movies, Keanu Reeves is really good. I mean, in addition to being an actor who is quite, at this point, quite skilled as like a, a martial artist and a, a wielder of guns, lots of guns, as he says again in this movie, um, he really works in these movies because he I mean I'm not sure Keanu Reeves is capable of doing that much more than kind of deadpanning everything but what he does in this movie which is just being very laconic and growling and only speaking like four words at a time really works for deadpanning everything you know Matt the one thing we have talked about with this movie and these movies in general is is they're like apparent relation to the films of Buster Keaton, uh, which I think really works. I mean, you know, Buster Keaton was a sort of stuntman and director in one who just remains stone-faced through everything. And, like, that's one thing Keanu Reeves does really well in these movies is just remain stone-faced while everything that happens around him is utterly ridiculous. And I think that works, like, fantastically.
2: Yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, I would say the other thing about the violence that makes it a little easier is that it's not... The world of the film is so ridiculous that it it doesn't it doesn't you don't feel like oh wow that would really be a mess on the streets of New York City if somebody did this (laughs) you think like this weird neon nightmare land uh, is having a bad night you know like everything is so over the top that it doesn't uh, doesn't make me squeamish the same way but I what you're saying about Keaton I agree totally like this this movie could not be more designed around just you know stunts and action sequences and and the same kind of stuff that he did um there which i also think is makes the violence a little easier because it's just so spectacular
0: (laughs) right yeah to the extent there's any plot it's just like what are the ways what are the ways in which john wick will kill all the guys and i feel like that's how we should go through this movie is just go through the various ways in which john wick kills people in john wick colon chapter three (laughs)
1: Okay, so when John Lick, John Link John her Lick her leaves belt. the Continental, um, the clock is ticking. He has one hour to get to a sort of minimum safe distance before every assassin in New York gets the message on their little sort of antiquated flip phones. And naturally his first stop is the New York Public Library.
0: Yeah, I lo- I loved how he immediately like the first laugh for the movie for, in the movie for me was just John Wick. First of all, he walks down the street with his dog, and he's like the only New Yorker who doesn't need a leash for his dog, even in Times Square. And then he just like jumps immediately into a cab with his wet dog, and like the cabbie doesn't say anything about it about this wet pit bull, and then uh, heads to the New York Public Library, where we finally get to this first big action sequence, which maybe you should describe as
2: Yeah. So he goes to the New York Public Library. He requests a very specific book um, that that doesn't actually exist, but goes and gets it and he's hidden in it. It's a a bunch of tokens that are apparently very valuable and was there even a gun in there i think it was just valuables right
1: it's i believe it's a, some of these sort of gold coins and there's a rosary which is gonna sort of factor into the oh, angelic right. yeah, Houston houston's um, plot later yeah
2: um yeah so it's just stuff he needs to disappear but then as often happens in these movies uh a gigantic man appears and tries to kill john wick which doesn't go very well for for him Um uh,
0: a gigantic man who I didn't realize until I read this on the internet later is NBA an NBA player? Did you know this, guys? I, I think
1: uh, I sort I might have. Or I mean, he's certainly very tall. Um, and is, right. and he is and the the book that and is he Russian or his?
0: So he's a Serbian M- NBA yeah. player. He's yeah. seven foot three, so he's in fact the oh. tallest player in the NBA. Uh, his name is Boban Marjanovic. And, yeah, I mean, basically he comes off as sort of a, like, um, Jaws-type figure where he doesn't really say anything. He just... He shows up and is twice as tall as our uh, hero.
1: Yeah, and there has been a sort of theme, or uh, that feels like a strong word, but it's some sort of a little skittering idea running through all these movies. Going back to the first one, kind of linking Keanu Reeves' character to the kind of Russian boogeyman or, or the Baba Yaga, as it as they translate it. And so the book, that, the book that he's requesting, that he's hidden the stuff in in the library, is this ancient book of Russian folk tales. And then he is attacked by this Eastern European assassin. As well. And um, John Wick, being John Wick, he has no weapons, but a large book of Russian folk tales is all he needs to uh, kill somebody.
0: Which he, we should describe this pre- precise mechanics of what he does, which is, first of all, he <laughs> holds the book up in front of the giant's face, punches the book into the giant's face repeatedly, then he puts it in his mouth and punches the book so it goes into the
1: giant's teeth and breaks his teeth. Yeah, it's like curb stomping him but with a book of fairy well, that's tales. The, so yeah. that's
0: the final thing that he yeah. does, which is he like goes over to the reading table, sets the book down on the reading table, somehow manages to position the giant over the binding of the book, and then like hits the giant's head down so his neck breaks over the book. And yeah, my <laughs> I think my theater was in a combination of riotous laughter and people doing, you know, kind of laughter Oh shits!
1: And it's funny, I mean, I don't think this is sort of a deliberate like piss take on the scene and then the Jason Bourne movies where he like attacks a guy with a rolled up magazine. But I mean, I, I could not sort of help that. but but think of that. I mean, so it's yeah. you know, it is this sort of he is a killing machine. Anything that's handy can be used as a weapon in this. But it it's just, you know, takes it to this like incredible extreme. Here and this is, I mean, you know, the rest of the movie. The things that tend to be handy are much more conventional um, killing machines. The next fight that he has after this is in the kind of display aisle of a knife shop. Yeah, what was that thing?
0: I mean, he goes into this warehouse that's like it's it's basically every smashable thing that you would want in an action movie, plus like every possible weapon. So. It's like a bunch of chandeliers. It's a bunch of mirrors. There's like a yeah. hall of knives. There's like a room full of
1: antique guns. It's your standard antique glassware and uh, like stabbing weapon uh, warehouse.
2: I, I love that though. Like I love that it's vision. The, these movies, their vision of the city is like every every business that you're not quite sure what they do. If you go back far enough, there's a, this a lavishly decorated arms dealing you know, warehouse or whatever. Like the difference between the fronts of all of the businesses in this and the in Interiors are amazing.
1: I think one, and one of my favorite things about this, too, is it has this very just kind of baked in concept of New York as, uh, you know, a city that has, you know, this, sort of as typical of New York as the city that's like seen it all. But I mean, in that scene you described for us where he gets into the cab and then he's there's like a lot of traffic and he's just. He just, just leaves his dog with the cab, with the cabbie, and says, okay, take him to the Continental. And he, and the cabbie goes, you know, yes, sir, Mr. Wick. And it's like the cabbie knew who he was all along. And one of the things that's run through this movie is that John Wick, who was kind of a feared figure in the first movie, is now kind of a celebrity, and he's sort of the famous person that, like, everybody, it's like everybody wants to, like, get in a fist fight with Mike Tyson or something. Like, everybody wants to kill John Wick because he's like, they're like, oh, I'm such a big fan, now I have to kill you. But there's also a fight scene later where he like stabs two people to death on a walkway in Grand Central and they just drop to the floor in the middle of like rush hour or commuting traffic. And the people around them do not <laughs> flinch or budge or acknowledge it at all. Yeah,
0: so, it's 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 sort of like a reprisal of the there's a sequence in the second one where they're walking through, I'm blanking on the name of it, but the sort of new train station in South Manhattan, and Keanu and John Wick and a hitman played by Common are, like, shooting each other. They do, they are using silencers, but they're, like, having an entire shootout in the middle of this extremely large crowd of people, and the New Yorkers just, like, don't. Right. And, and it's not even
1: in this movie, it's not even like played for a joke. It just happens and it moves on. It's just right. kind of taken as read that like New Yorkers don't give a shit.
0: Yeah. It's part of well, the like straight facedness of the of these movies that I really
1: like.
2: Maybe they finally did the math on how many people the Continental and its uh, associated businesses would have to be employing, employing and realized everyone in New York was <laughs> yeah, well they, aware they, what was happening. Yes, because they are a
1: major work. employer in the tri state area. Yeah. So they wield right. quite a lot of influence. So knife fight now. What do we think of the knife fight?
2: I loved it. Uh, the, the, the thing where he threw the knives at the guy, and um, I guess there's like a knife holder, right? A novelty knife holder that's like a little figure that you stick all the knives in. Do you guys know this thing?
1: Uh, um, sort of.
2: It, it, anyway, the, there's a there's a guy with like six knives sticking out of his chest through most of this fight, <laughs> and uh, it's the same sort of thing. It's like one knife in a chest is really sad and frightening, but like six, well, the guy looks like a pincushion. It's, it's kind of funny. I mean, I thought they did a good job of making incredibly horrible violence sort of timed right and slapsticky.
1: Yeah, and it's not, you know, sanitized exactly. It's, like, quite bloody. And there is, I mean, one of the few, like, kind of genuinely gruesome scenes in this movie is at the end of this fight where he, like, actually, you know, sticks a knife, like, up to the edge of somebody's eye and, like, shoves it into his skull. You know, like, that's actually, you know, the violence is kind of rarely, it's often kind of, like, gross, but not often disturbing. That was the one where you're like, ooh, like, that's...
0: Yeah, and that was also very just effectively shot in a way that I was left trying to puzzle out exactly how they do it. So like another thing that these movies do really well is incorporate, you know, CGI blood and, and gore very seamlessly into these action scenes so that you can have all these long takes and you like kind of don't know what's a squib and what's CGI and, and that sequence presumably they had, you know, like maybe they made a fake head of that guy in classic I don't know. I couldn't quite tell how they did it, and that that I think is just representative of the the quality of effects in these movies generally.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you know these movies have um, one of the one of the things that kind of they made their reputation on is again they're kind of you know come out of they're made sort of by stuntmen. A lot of the performers are are you know right. stuntmen um, or or actual martial artists or you know people who kind of float between the two. So they are shot in a lot of these very long, apparently unbroken takes. Although you never know with you know, technology now, how much of that is actually legit. And obviously there's a lot of erased, you know, safety apparatus that's taken out of the frame. But, you know, the, the, blood, the blood splatter, I think, is is sort of traditionally in most movies now, almost all of that is CG just because it's like makes a mess and that the squibs never go off quite right. And that, I think, is like fairly cheap to add to, yeah. you know, a frame. So I think all of that is, and maybe even the muzzle flashes and stuff like that are, are, are added in later but what about the horses sam we yes. have to
0: get i i'm just eager to get past the knife fight so we can get to my favorite way that john wick killed a bad guy in this movie <laughs> which is a, right across from the chandeliers knives and antique guns store there is a, a horse stable I mean, apparently course,
1: yeah you know
2: <laughs> as, as in, one finds that up with with those, those, those uh, central park things coming out of there right there must be a horse stable somewhere in manhattan because you've got horses
1: that's
0: true that's true anyway he has a fight with these guys in the horse stable and his way of killing one guy is that he hits the horse so that the horse kicks back into this guy's head which he then repeats like at least one maybe two more times which there's just a quality of these movies where it feels like a bunch of people just sat around thinking, like, how can John Wick kill people in this movie? And they like throw out ideas, and then they're just like, yes, that's in the movie.
1: I mean, that's that's true of a lot of you know a lot of kind of modern action filmmaking. We but we when we you know talked about the Mission Impossible movies before, we talked about how those yeah. are just those are you know literally built to, and really since even even the second one I think that John Woo directed, they are I mean they are built up from set pieces, and then the plot is engineered to fit between them. Um, John Wick make. Like, very little effort to pretend that it is anything other than that. Um, and that is, uh, you know, it may be to your taste or not, you may prefer to, you know, have a little sort of dressed up a little bit more and, and pretend that there is more of a plot. But this is very, like, you know, it does not take long to get to the fireworks factory
2: here. Yeah. You were just kind of
1: in, you were moving from one section of the fireworks factory to another section of the fireworks factory for
2: two Yeah, I think it's so. been two movies since they haven't been, like, right in the middle of the fireworks factory for every scene. <laughs>
1: Um, So so yes so there's there's the horse fight. Um, It's actually I think it is even harder than in the Mission Impossible movies to kind of keep track of what when does when does the motorcycle uh, chase come in? Is that after that? I mean it's right after
0: that I think because John Wick then gets on one of the horses and just like rides away and they chase after him on motorcycles and that must be how he gets to Angelica Houston. But yeah I don't know if you guys have anything to say about the horse versus motorcycle fight which is pretty spectacular. And is, like, largely in, you know, long take or what appears to be an uninterrupted sequence.
1: Yeah, and that's a lot. I mean, the the motorcycle stuff, I mean, must be, um, that has to be um, CG somehow because it's just, like, way too deep. But he is literally kind of, um, you know, he ends up on a bridge and it's kind of has got, like, you know, people on motorcycles pursuing on either side. And ends up somehow, like, jamming something into the wheels of one and basically, like, knock, like, kind of knocks over one motorcycle with another motorcycle. Um, he's you know, sort of like actually using like motorcycles as weapons, which is really, I, I mean, spectacular and seems, if they had done it for real, extraordinarily dangerous.
0: Yeah, I mean, however they did it, it was like very effective where like the magic trick, I couldn't quite figure out how the magic trick worked in a way that... Um, was enjoyable.
1: Right. I mean, which, which is another, you know, enjoyable thing, you know, fun thing about kind of stunt work as well. There's just kind of, oh, how the people are like really doing this for real and they're really, you know, throwing those kicks and those punches and, you know, did those dives and the flips and whatever. And then there's the kind of like how did they, you know, hide that trick or whatever. And I think you really, um, you know, you get the sense of, of someone who has spent an entire career um, and probably, you know, several somebody spent an entire career just kind of coming up with ideas that maybe – um, you know, didn't quite work in some movie or another because like, uh it wasn't right for the character. Or we can't, you know, we need to see the <laughs> actor's face and so we can't stage this. It. And it's just like, what if we put them all in a movie and there was nothing to stop us from using them because nothing actually needs to make sense.
2: Yeah, it's sort of an amazing... Uh amazingly boiled down concept there where it really is. They just can, they have, they it's simple enough that they just can go with like, well, this time let's do samurai swords on motorcycles. Let's see what that, yeah. let's play out every permutation we can get with those props or whatever.
1: All right. So yeah. the three things that John finds in that book of fairy tales at the beginning are the, these gold coins, which are just the currency of the kind of assassin underworld. And then there is a rosary, um, which takes him to Angelica Houston, and then, which we'll talk about right after this, there's a little kind of uh, sort of like a, almost like a makeup compact thing which has a little flippy kind of compartments on either side that you use. You put your blood in to kind of seal a contract between assassins and pay a debt and that will take him to um, the next step in his journey. But first he goes to visit Angelica Houston, who is the...
0: Proprietor uh, of the Tarkovsky Theater? Yes,
1: yes, of course, because, I mean, who doesn't think of Tarkovsky when watching these movies?
0: Right, so (laughs) there's a way in which these movies, like, I can't tell... So they're definitely very uh, postmodern and self-conscious and, like, almost a spoof in a way that really works, but then they occasionally gesture towards a sort of higher brow, uh, more, like, existential... Um, brand of postmodernism. And I like the Tarkovsky thing. I could not make like the, these movies could not be less like a Tarkovsky movie as far as I can tell.
1: No, I mean, there's probably like more cuts in like one five minute sequence of this movie <laughs> than like an right. en- entire, you know, Tarkovsky, like three hour Tarkovsky movies. Um So it may just be like, hey, we like Tarkovsky movies or they just think sure. I probably just think it's funny.
0: I guess they also were just sitting there like, oh, we need an Eastern
1: European name. Oh, yeah, with the Tarkovsky guy. Yes. So, anyway, so he meets Angelica Houston, who is the head of this um, kind of, you know, gangsters, Russian gangster kick called the Roma Ruska. And I, th- I think at this point, out we find out that. that um, John Wick is actually Roma himself, unless it's just a nickname for him. But she calls him something like Giorgiani uh, Jovanich or something like that. We've had some I, arguments I, I about had it.
0: Down as John Doni Jovanovich, which just seems like the name that you make up on the spot if you want to turn John Wick into a Russian
1: name. Right, John Doni Jovanovich. Yes, I mean I, I think you know to. to you know, not to rationalize our collective sloppy note taking, but I think that is like that is how important it is to the plot. It basically, yeah. she kind of says it once and then keeps calling him Giordani or Gendani or whatever it is. Um, but, yeah, so he has this this ticket, um, which is this and this is this, you know, great sort of like very, very over the top performance from Angelica Houston's very sort of thick, you know, accent and this sort of, you know, stern um, ballet mistress, uh, mean. That she has, and he has this um, ticket, which is this rosary, is, and basically this is his way to get out of the country. Um, her henchman like heats this, you know, golden cross up in the fire, brands him on his back, um, and then and he says he wants to go to Casablanca. Would you think first? You think is like a, is that a figure of speech? But you no, know, he's actually going to Morocco.
0: Yes, presumably it's a reference to the film Inception.
1: <laughs> um yeah there's no there's no real reason for him to go there except that maybe like they well, wanted to do some shots that were kind of like orangey instead of like steel blue so it's good to get out of the city for a little while. Yeah
0: but- I mean I think it's interesting to see like so we've spent at this point 2 and a third movies learning how this network of assassin works in this network of assassins works in New York and it's the, I like the idea of seeing what the whole John Wick cinematic universe is like outside of New York is interesting so i think that's probably the actual well th- that would be one reason to justify it um on the on an entertainment level and then on a plot level i think the reason is just that he um is you know, excommunicado by the 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 table as it's called, or the high table, the high table, I, yeah, the okay. high table, and so he needs to appeal to someone who is quote unquote above the high table, sure. um, and so that's why he's going to Morocco to to visit that figure.
1: All right, before we jump to Morocco, Matt, do you want to talk about like what's going on back at home with uh, Ian McShane's character and the rest of the the people in the Continental?
2: Right. Well, so in. As I think people warned all of those characters during the second movie, uh, helping, siding with John Wick against the high table has consequences. So there's a character played by Asia Kate Dillon who shows up at the Continental and introduces herself to at the front desk as the adjudicator. She says she's an adjudicator, which is not something we've heard of before. And um, she's sort of a, a representative of the high table of these people who head up the Assassin Society and is there to clean up after Wick, which means consequences for... Winston, they tell him, uh, Ian McShane's character, who runs the Continental, this assassin hotel, that uh, she tells him after 40 years that he's going to be asked to step down. And Lawrence Fishburne, who runs this sort of, again, ludicrous network of homeless people who are also international (laughs) assassins, is being asked to step down as the head of the network of homeless people who are also (laughs) international assassins.
0: The Bowery. He's the Bowery king.
2: the Bowery. Yeah, I think by the point he leaves for Morocco, all we know is that they're in trouble, but not what form that's going to take.
0: So yeah, so basically the effect of this is that um, the adjudicator, the Asia K. Dillon character, is uh, needs to like contract someone out to go after Winston, and so. They, I mean, I don't think we know what pronouns this character, the adjudicator, uses. Asia Kate Dillon uses they, them. This is sort of, just as a very quick sidebar, an interesting aspect of these movies, that, like, they're extremely male-dominated. They're as male-dominated as this conversation is right now. Um, And yet yet they, like, have uh, now engaged in a sort of tradition of including characters played by like non-binary actors. The second movie had Ruby Rose in it playing and, and she's, I, I believe she identifies as genderqueer and she's playing like a, a mute character. And it, it, when they first introduced this Asia Kate Dillon character, the adjudicator, they seemed to sort of nod to the Ruby Rose thing. Like uh, the adjudicator doesn't talk at first either. Like they communicate through various expressions for, for like the first, I don't know, 30 seconds of their first scene or something. So I don't really know what to make of that, but it's an interesting aspect of these movies that kind of undercuts their general super butch, uh, super male-dominatedness a little bit.
1: Right, and we see in this movie, I think we've gotten glimpses of it before, but we see um, in this movie kind of the the control center that the this world of the high table kind of operates out of. Um, this is where... Um, it's this kind of, you know, sort of sort of like steampunk um, combination of, you know, like sort of old computers with like, you know, green-lettered CRT terminals and, um, you know, switchboards with like, you know, plug-in cables and... And, uh,
0: and what it mostly reminds me of, and I can't believe they're still doing this several years later, but, but like at the time it reminded me exactly of the Hotline Bling video. Like they're all of these very model-esque women running switchboards in outfits that are almost identical to the women running a call center in the hotline bling video. Right, so
1: they've all got, like, these sort of, like, you know, 1940s, like, secretarial pool outfits on, but they also have, like, tons of tattoos and, like, piercings. One of of the the people who's running this, you know, kind of command center is, like, there's a, a, you know, man with, like, multiple, like, piercings in his lower lip and stuff like that, so it's this weird kind of, um, you know, sort of punk-like modern primitive crossed with, like, you know, Mad Men office pool aesthetic. Um, and I never know how much to just kind of feel like that's just, you know, window dressing or whatever, but it's like an interesting combination. There is, you know, as I mentioned, the assassins have these kind of, um, you know, old-fashioned phones when they get the the texts that say, like, John Wick is, you know, now there's a $14 million price on his head, like in the command center, they write it up on a chalkboard um, and, and it goes out to the assassins and they, they're getting, like, you know, they all have, you know, pre-smartphones that they communicate on and, stuff like that so it's just you know i think some of it is just like it's more visually interesting to see them like kind of flip open the top of their phone than to just like poke at the front of an iphone or something like that but it is also um you know just the thing that these movies are, are trying to do maybe to suggest that this is a world that's been going on for a long time and in some ways has kind of like antiquated um rules and and mores
0: yeah i i mean it's, it's one of those things where it's like, oh, this thing seems so obviously sexist, but it is so obviously sexist that it almost feels like sexism in quotation marks or something. And then there are these little twists on it along the way. Yeah. Make and, you... and
1: casting Azure Kate Dillon in this role. I mean, if this, um, you know, if this, this role had been played by a cis woman i mean this is the character who kind of comes in and tells the boys to stop having fun you know she's like wearing this like you know like a sort of man suit and got her hair cut short and has this kind of you know stern like oh time to stop screwing around you broke the rules now you have to pay for it tone and it is um and i don't know that that casting a you know a non-binary actor in it like really takes the curse off that but like maybe a little you know makes it slightly more complicated than just like okay mom says we have to stop now Um, So the scene now shifts to Morocco um, where John Wick meets an old friend played by Halle Berry. Um, who's actually, like, great in this movie. I I feel like it's a very, it's a small part. She doesn't have, like, a lot of lines, but she just really, and and you're like- Why do you say actually, Sam? Oscar-winning
0: actress Halle Berry.
1: Oscar-winning actress Halle Berry. Not the first person I would cast as, like, a hard-bitten, like, assassin who's been doing this Uh, Yeah, Catwoman didn't work out so well for her, I suppose. um, But, and I just, you know, I haven't, and, and, but, I mean, she just has a really, and it's a small- Part, But I mean, she's just like, I don't, I can't remember the last time I kind of liked her this much or anything. She's just playing, you know, the sort of like very lived in kind of, you know, world weary. she's like, a, you know, she's a total badass. She's got some like serious um, hound. She's like living in her, you know, palace in Morocco somewhere. And she's not at all um, happy to see John Wick.
2: So, but, so you're saying she's working in Casablanca when a, a face from her past shows up unexpectedly? <laughs>
1: ah,
0: ah! When you put it like that, all right, yes. Another
1: Inception reference. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, yeah, so, so John Weck shows up. Um, he has this little compact thing that I mentioned before. Um, she's not at all happy to see him, does not want to help him, um, but he has this blood oath that they signed, and, and she is required to pay off her end of it. So she needs to... Take him to this um, a character called Barada, played by Jerome Flynn, who's you know best known as the character Bron on Game of Thrones, doing a very strange accent. In this movie, um, he is the guy who like mints the gold coins that we have seen throughout all these movies, and he is going to help John Wick. I think basically the idea is he John Wick needs to kind of like clear his slate somehow. He's so he's trying to get back to um, this character called the Elder, who's played by Amzai Tagmoui. Um, and he is going to be like out in the desert somewhere, but he needs Braun. I'm just going to call him Braun. Sure. Uh, he <laughs> needs Braun to tell him how to get there. Braun, as he would on Game of Thrones, tells John Buck to fuck off. Well, specifically, uh, we have yeah. to get the dog.
0: We have hardly talked about the dogs Let's talk about the in dogs. these movies. Yes, and right. Decim, I feel like you should talk about the dogs. This is probably my favorite sequence in the movie, mostly because of the dogs.
2: Yeah, so Holly Berry, in, in addition to being Rick from Casablanca or whatever, also is a, a dog lover, as all the good people in these movies are, and has two, what are they, German Shepherds?
0: They're um, like something in that or, general ball, ballpark. I don't think they're German Shepherds exactly, but if listeners can picture German Shepherds. and She has, range. yeah,
2: attack dogs in any event, yeah. um, which uh, then they later have an entire action sequence built around them using those dogs as weapons. Like you would use a pencil or an old Russian book or a motorcycle <laughs> and a samurai sword. <laughs> no, what to be clear, not like picking the dogs up and um, uh, swinging them around like a sword. I mean that they, uh, <laughs> Holly Berry commands the dogs to attack and they do that in sort of uh, amazing choreographed things with weapons and uh, yeah. The
0: dogs. Yeah. I mean, basically they, be, it becomes an action sequence in which it's Keanu Reeves, Halle Berry, and these two dogs are all kind of equal participants in taking out this entire, you know, Casablanca hotel full of, of hitmen. Um, and I, I just love how, so these movies famously started with a bunch of hitmen killing John Wick's dog, which led to John Wick taking vengeance for an entire movie, which was, like, If you're a dog lover with a little bit of a stomach, as as I am, that was just an incredibly wonderful premise for a movie. But I think they also realized that they alienated some portion of uh, would-be fans by killing a dog at the beginning of their movie. And in, and it seems like in the movie's sense, like they've really gone out of their way to pledge to viewers that the dogs are always going to be okay, which is why it's so wonderful that John Wick is like, take my dog to the continental and put him under the you know protection of the finest hitmen in the world in the earlier scene in the taxi and in this movie the dogs get bulletproof vests put on them and then there's this moment where Braun, I suppose we were calling him, shoots one of the dogs, but we know that the dog has this body armor on, so we just immediately know that the dog's gonna be okay and that, that guy is I mean, fucked.
1: It, but it's also like it's also like not like I mean it's a dog, it's not like the body armor's hidden under a shirt. So yeah, why yeah, Braun yeah. doesn't know that either is a little <laughs> curious. Um but yes, yeah, so Braun um, you know, tells them well basically Braun says, Okay, look I'll make you I'll make you a deal. I will tell you where this place is, but I want one of your dogs. And Halle Berry says, "No, you can't have one of my dogs." And Brown says, "Okay, well then I'm going to kill your dog," and uh, And he shoots
0: it in the bulletproof vest.
1: (laughs) Yes, and that that, as the saying goes leads to an argument. Uh, So then there is a big ass uh, gun slash dog fight in this hotel. Um, And this this is the part to be clear. Like this is the part where that I just I have not seen like Halle Berry like do this kind of like intense like physical acting before. It is a lot of these you know, basically sort of, you know, stuntman sets. And we know that, you know, that we've seen Keanu Reeves do this a lot in the Matrix movies and in the previous John Wick movies, but she, like, really holds her own here. And it's the same kind of long takes of, like, you know, her getting thrown around and throwing people around and, um, you know, shooting people in the head and, you know, sticking her dogs on people. And she's really, like, right in it.
0: Yeah, it's it's extremely well choreographed. And my favorite moment in this whole sequence, and I'm curious... uh, how you guys think they did it um, is uh, Halle Berry is, you know, shooting a bunch of guys or whatever. And then there's a baddie who's up a wall. That's probably like 15 feet above, you know, like at least a story above her. And so she, you know, whistles for one of her dogs to come over as she does throughout the sequence and go kill this guy. And then she kind of ducks down um, to present her back uh, for the dog as a sort of springboard. And so the dog runs jumps on Halle Berry's back and then runs up the wall to climb over it and go kill this guy and it's sort of like you know the whole Fred Astaire running up a wall thing and I can't tell whether that dog actually did it or whether it was CG
1: I I mean I I, I hate to be the guy who like always thinks it's CG but it's probably <laughs> CG I mean it's this is the curse of like watching
0: that, movies in some, 2019. did you, now, did you like... believe that a dog could run up a wall
2: I, in in 2019, I believed a dog could fly. (laughs) Um, Yeah, Yeah, uh, actually, uh, having uh, seen that, uh, there's this dog, the dog trainer who trained uh, the dog from the artist, um, I met at one point to see another dog that he was training to do stunts. um, And it's not implausible to me that that particular dog could have scrabbled up a wall. So uh, because he can do like standing backflips and parkour and things so it's not impossible um that they just found a dog that could climb a wall but uh uh but if i had to put money on it i would bet on cgf
1: they'd had a dog to do parkour this is what a country yeah Uh, exactly (laughs) yes so uh so john Wick, not surprisingly uh wins this fight (laughs) <laughs> um, he's told that he has to go out into the desert and like, you know, walk until he's about like, look up at the star, look at a certain star and like walk till he's dead and then like walk some more and Then maybe if the elder feels like meeting him will meet it. So, um, Halle Berry drives him out there. Um, she, um, gives him, sets him on his journey with a little bit of water, uh, which she first like makes so she's going to hand to him just like a little psych move, drinks a little bit of it, like spits some of it back in the bottle and then gives him that. I and mean, then for some reason, so we see Keanu Reeves like hiking up a dune um, with this little, you know, vulvic bottle in his hand. Um, Why well, didn't just like drink the water and then not have to carry one more thing? I don't know. But anyway, so he passes out and then he wakes up in this tent um, and he meets the elder, played by um, Saeed Tagmui and uh, forced. What happens next?
0: Yeah, just que- so Tagmui, who uh, listeners might remember from like Three Kings, where he plays a sort of Iraqi hostage or. Um, Wonder Woman, you know, he he, unfortunately he's kind of always hired to play the one, you know, Arab or uh, Middle Eastern character in the movie. But he's always great. Um, So uh, talk movies character, the elder presents Wick with a choice, which is basically that Wick can either die or continue to live as a hitman, but he must sort of swear to pledge himself to the high table, which, you know, if we remember back to the first movie, this, this was supposed to be wick doing his, uh, you know, one last job and getting out of the game. But wick, unfortunately, as always happens in these movies, will never get out of the game. And he gives, I mean, I, we've hardly talked about wick as a, as a character, which is probably revealing. Cause I don't know how much any of us actually care about wick as a character rather than as like a bullet delivery system um but he he's explicitly states his motivation which is just that he wants to keep living in order to uh remember his dead wife it's not the greatest uh motivation it's like a textbook example of of what uh critics and tv writers and stuff called fridging, so which is just like leaving a wife or female love interest in a fridge in order to motivate the male character to kill a bunch of people. So that is what John Wick chooses to do, which sends him back to New York where, Oh, the last part of this deal is that he must
1: kill Winston, his sort of like father figure. Ian McShane. Yes. Yeah. Um, So he heads back to New York to the continental. Um,
2: Let let, let, let me just say, one thing on that, the other thing that I think is important, because I think it's going to be what John Wick 4 will be all about, is he ends up leaving his wedding ring with that guy who heads the high table. Um, yes, that is true. And, and as somebody, f- somebody who tends to tends to hold a grudge, if you take something that is important to him, uh, I, I, I feel like that's going to become important.
1: Yes, he cuts off, he as, as a oh, sign wow. of something, um, he is required to cut off his ring finger with a chisel. And yes, yeah, so he leaves behind his finger and his ring with this guy and heads back to New York. Um, so meanwhile, in, in New York, the adjudicator has rounded up a whole uh, new bunch of assassins to take on John Wick, headed by a uh, character named Zero, played by Mark Dacascos, who is a martial artist who will probably be familiar to most people as um, having done like 240 episodes of Iron Chef America, uh, but also also an ac- very accomplished uh, martial artist. Um, yeah he
0: was in like Brotherhood of the Wolf which was this sort of cults or somewhat international hit French movie in like the mid2000s
1: yeah and he's he was he's done some episodes of Hawaii 50 and stuff like that he's he's been around for a while um so I think people who kind of know the genre know him but right. I haven't seen him in a kind of role this high profile like in an American movie before so he he is the character who's kind of like such a big fan you know he really he's like oh man John Wick they're like really love your work and now I have to prove that I'm better than you by killing you Uh, he's so good in this movie and there's
0: this problem talking about this movie where you kind of don't want to become just another episode of of you know the Chris Farley show from the SNL sketch where you just like restate something that happens and you're like remember when john wick killed the guy with the book that was awesome yeah and then the movie ba- this third one basically makes this to character zero into that but like he is chris farley the host of the chris farley show as a martial arts star
1: yeah or i thought of like syndrome and the incredibles too is right, there, yeah, yeah
0: yeah, that's true yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, it's a sort of like bad fan thing. So he um, he has a bunch of you know he uh, you know unfortunately um, this respect for John Wick does not require does not involve like taking him on one on one at first. So he has a whole bunch of henchmen. He
0: it's literally busloads. Yes, he sends like two or three double decker busloads full of hitmen and SWAT gear to the Continental.
1: Yeah, and that includes among other people, um, Yayan Ruihan, who you may uh, remember from the Raid, the raid, raid movies thing. or um, this, uh, Star Wars. Right? No.
0: Yeah, yeah, he was in. Um, yeah, he was also in The Force Awakens yes. in like a brief cameo.
1: Yes, yeah, he was one of the people running around the the ship with the big monster where we meet Han Solo in in The Force Awakens. So um, he has a, a bunch of fights here um, in a kind of. Uh, I think they did the Hall of Mirrors thing in too. So this is more like a Hall of Transparencies. a lot of like lucite glass cases that like Keanu Reeves gets thrown into and shatters. Like there's one shot where he gets thrown into like five of them. In a row, um, where that shot, I think it's probably Keanu Reeves stuntman gets thrown into like five of them in a row. But nonetheless, it is it is you know apparently an unbroken take and like pretty impressive.
0: Yeah, um, I mean it starts off. It feels to me almost um, well. I think it's it starts off quite self consciously as a sort of reprisal of the famous lobby scene from the end of the first Matrix. To the extent that uh, there's a conversation between John Wick and. Ian McShane because basically they form a uh, they forge an alliance right. Uh, Ian McShane persuades John Wick to fight with him instead of uh, killing him,
1: and he essentially convinces them like better to die f- better to die free than live you know in Hawk to the High Table. Um, But also, please don't kill me. (laughs) Right.
0: And which which just leads to him, you know, asking John Wick what he needs. And he says, guns, lots of guns, just like before the big Matrix sequence. And so then you have a literal fight in a lobby with Keanu Reeves versus a bunch of SWAT guys. In a movie that also fe- features, you know, Lawrence Fishburne. So there's just this way in which these movies have increasingly become kind of the Matrix sequels that many people wanted the second and third Matrix movies to yeah. be. Um,
1: and I should well, mention that these glass cases that Keanu is getting thrown into are... Uh, apparently have, like, sort of glass brains on pedestals inside them or something well, like crystal that. Crystal I mean,
2: there's two separate fights here, right? Like, there's... Uh, he goes to the Continental, and then there's a... Then they send the buses, and then much later they come up to the main area, right? Or am I misremembering?
0: Yeah, that? yeah, no, that, that's right. Yeah, I just wanted to make sure we didn't so. miss the lobby scene before we get to the uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Kingdom of the Crystal yeah, well,
2: Skull. Well, the thing that, yeah, I was going to say about it is that like I feel like these movies, this movie in particular, has kind of the same relationship to Keanu Reeves' other movies that Zero has to... John Wick or whatever, because right, right. Uh, it, it is just packed with references to old Reeves movies. And you mentioned that lobby fight being from The Matrix and The Guns Line. But also right before that, they do the scene basically from The Devil's Advocate where Pacino gives his big monologue to um, uh, to Keanu Reeves where Al Pacino is the devil and Keanu Reeves is his son between Winston and, and John Wick. When they go up, they have a conversation up in that ridiculous crystal office, but um, they put... Winston in front of this giant television screen that moves in sort of like a cloud format that's uh, black and white that looks a whole lot like that bas-relief thing behind Pacino in that scene. And it's basically that scene if how it would have played out if, you know, Reeves character had said, yes, I will fight with you, Satan, you know, let's take on the people above us or whatever, because it is that, you know, better to rule in hell than 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 serve in heaven kind of thing where they're did, turning against the people.
1: Did you know what form. was going on with that screen later? Because that screen is like very prominent in the in the whole like last 20 minutes of the movies. We keep seeing it out the windows of the sort of upper floors of the Continental. It looks like it's playing like like ads for like luxury watches at some point. Like I did or like some like like huts and yards, like some new like fancy condo complexes I, like I cannot figure out what's going on.
2: Well, I, I assume mean, maybe that was it's just product placement that yeah. they just wanted to set up like some reason for it to be there, but then they had they needed video footage, so I would assume they sold that spot.
1: Yeah,
0: I mean, Matt, you made much more sense of that all of that set design that I did. I just thought it like was, you know, there was the rule of awesome. They just wanted it to look really cool. Um, and it, this the thing it reminded me of is uh, the the thing it reminded me of is the sequence from Skyfall that is similarly in like a big. I yeah, don't know what it is. It's like a hotel full of transparent like jellyfish. walls and yeah. floors and neon lighting and uh, was basically just like a vehicle for Roger Deakins to have a bunch of fun while shooting an action sequence. And I, this is not yeah. quite as original as that, but it's still pretty effective.
2: But I also think it's... Um, I, I, I mean, there's two things I would say. The first is that I think these movies have kind of an interesting relationship to the Bond movies in of like the Roger Moore through... Goldeneye era basically in that they have these there's this sort of one-upmanship where they're trying to do uh harder versions of the same stunts that they did in previous movies you know like like the mirror sequence in the second one um well what's harder than shooting in something where everything's reflective shooting in something where everything's transparent so let's do that um but I would also say like the thing that I love about John Wick movies is you see these environments and you immediately know oh wow they're going to do these sorts of stunts and these sorts of disasters in them. like you 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 don't see a a John Wick set and think, wow, that looks really cool. Or I don't anyway. I think, wow, um, this is going to blow up real good. And then it does. So like when (laughs) when John Wick walking into a room that is filled with like 20 giant crystal display cases with skulls in them, you know that people are going to just get thrown through them. And then there's a shot in one of those fights where they just, I want to say it's like five of them in a row. They just, somebody picks up John Wick, throws him through the glass. John Wick falls down, the guy walks over, picks him up, throws him through the glass yeah <laughs> it's just like very I mean, efficiently i i love that like every time you see glass in a john wick movie uh i <laughs> my heart sings because i know what's gonna
0: happen <laughs> yeah i think there are a few comedies that have done a sort of spoof of the way that panes of glass seem to always appear in action movies i know there's a spoof of it in i think like wayne's world 2 where they like are running through an alley and some guys are just carrying a pane of glass through the alley and then they like the guys paint, carrying the pane of glass, like they're like, whoa, wait, wait, back up, back up, so that they can run through it. It, it feels, it feels like that, just with a straight face.
2: Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I love it. It's very efficient.
1: <laughs> <laughs> All right. So anyway, so there's even more awesome fighting um, in this one. Um, there's a, a shot that I'm I particularly fond of, where like he's fighting two people with swords, and one of the guys gets stuck, and then one of the swords gets stuck, and then Keanu just kind of like throws the other guy like into the sword that's stuck in a thing. To, to kill him, like he's not even swinging it; he's just kind of using it as like a stationary, uh, you know, slicing surface. Um, so, anyway, so, so, you know, John, John Wick is triumphant here. He gets back to his dog. And then we have this sort of final. Can we just talk
0: about one more y'all? moment? Oh, well, please. Yeah, yeah, I forgot yeah, yeah. in yeah. terms of, I mean, we should, I feel like all get an opportunity to just name our like favorite john wick kill that we haven't talked about yet or something but there's this uh my favorite from this was the payoff to a moment earlier in the movie where john wick shows up i think it's maybe in the saeed tagmui scene and he has to like turn over his gun um or whatever Uh, in order to make everyone safe. But then they're like, oh, and your belt too. And you're just like, what? Like the viewer, it's kind of funny, but it seems really random. And then it has this payoff in this final scene where John Wick in the middle of a fight scene all of a sudden just takes off his belt and starts whipping all of the bad guys with it. Um, And then like binding them in the belt and basically does everything like that the choreographers and stuntmen and uh, Keanu Reeves himself on this movie could possibly think of for John Wick to do with a belt. And it's very wonderful.
1: Right. It is. I mean, it is Not to like, you know, force the comparison too hard, but it did, it does. It is a little kind of iron chef, like where it's just like, <laughs> you come into the room and it's like, okay, you got a head of broccoli and two eggs and some chili paste. Like, what are you going to do with it? Yeah. You know, just like exhaust every
2: possibility with these
1: like three objects. Um, well, the, the,
2: the other thing that it reminded me of a lot, the way that these scenarios are constructed is video games that it's sort of like, uh, you know, fighting the archives with pistols only or whatever. They keep They keep varying what weapons are available to people. Um, and, but before we move on from the Continental fight, I wanted to say one other thing about it, which is that that was also the sequence that most reminded me of video games because the people who show up in the, um, in the bus that invade the Continental are wearing these helmets that mean that they can't just be headshot at a distance the way that Wick has been killing people the whole time, and it's sort of that classic video game thing, like, well, this enemy, you've got to fight a little bit differently. Um, And then they kind of work through him figuring out how to do that, uh, which he does. And then you have, before he fights Zero, you have these two other swordsmen that are sort of like a classic video game mini-boss thing uh, that he has to fight. And I mean, it just sort of escalates in a way that is not so much, I think, takes his cues from video games more than cinema.
1: Right. And one of the things I like about the, the kind of body armor twist in the lobby scene that you're mentioning is that, like, it's the movie never tells you that. Like, it's just, used yeah. to, you know, it's just like yep. John all of a sudden is shooting people like five times and kind of instead of once or, you know, twice. And it doesn't, and then there's never an point where he's like, damn, body armor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, he just eventually he starts like flipping up the visors to people's helmets and shooting them in the face. That way, and you're like, oh, they have body armor on or something, but it's, I mean, you know, they're the people on motorcycles had helmets and that did not seem to stop him from shooting them in the head. So it's just kind of like you pick it up kind of by osmosis as you're watching this. And I would, I, I, subtlety is probably not a word to bring into a discussion of these movies, but it's nice. They underplay it a little bit, which I like. All right. So to wrap up the plot and this is, this is my one sort of real issue with this movie. I so was we wrap up the plot. Um, we kind of get everybody together on um, the roof of the hotel, you have um, Ian Ian McShane's character, Winston, um, Lance Reddick, who's kind of his, you know, faithful concierge, and the adjudicator. And the adjudicator um, says to Ian McShane, basically, like, um, you know, basically, you know, his his life is forfeit now, too, and the only chance that he has is to kill John Wick. And after John Wick, like, after putting his life on the line in the first place, to give John Wick an extra hour to get away from the Continental, and after having his life effectively saved by John Wick, Winston just says sure, um, and so John Wick comes back up to the back up to the uh, roof. Um, Ian McShane shoots him several times. Um, Keanu Reeves goes over the edge. You know, flips off several, you know, awnings and uh, fire escapes and things to theoretically break his fall. So you can sort of believe that he would survive like falling five stories to a cobblestone (laughs) street. Yeah, I don't
0: know how how good a job the uh, fire escape did of breaking his fall. Yes. Yeah, Yeah. it's like a weird combination of cushioning his fall and making it look more gruesome. And Lance Lance Reddick
1: says, you know, well played, sir. And like, that's that. And I I feel like, like, I don't care about the plot in these movies at all. But I, that just seems like, But you were sort of telling me that I was supposed to and I was supposed to care about this sort of, like, father-son bond between these, like, two characters. And now you're just like, oh, but, you know, when push comes to shove, like, Ian McShane's just going to shoot him because it's him or me.
0: Well, they try to explain it, right? I don't know that it totally makes sense. But from what I remember, the explanation they try to offer is that – so after Ian McShane does this and, you know, Lance Reddick says, well played, sir – there's um somebody comments like oh I get it like he Winston was making a show of force and basically as the head of the Continental he was showing the high table like how much he could do um before they would actually just kind of like make a deal with him to respect him and so maybe that makes sense in a really convoluted way they at least tried but yeah I I felt a little impatient with that sequence Well
2: I mean he shoots you felt impatient with it because you didn't think that, I don't think that that was like a real betrayal. He shoots him in the body armor over the edge there. Um, I I guess. Ah. Uh, Yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah, I think, I think it's, it's, it's it's not, I I don't, I like, I don't think that Winston is like planning, like thinking the best thing for you right now is to fall five stories. But I think like he did it in a way that there was a, that Wick would have some kind of a chance.
1: Yeah. I I mean, I guess, I I mean, I guess, you know, like he does live in the John Wick universe in which you can fall five stories and not, um, die so I guess armed with that knowledge he's like well maybe if I just kind of shoot him in the body armor and he goes over the edge the fire like, escape there's, there's a fall. chance there's a chance he'll survive um, even having watched those movie that's a little hard for me to swallow but yeah that's that's something but, well, I mean, but I John if
2: Winston, if Winston had wanted to be sure that John Wick was dead Winston would have made sure that John Wick was dead you know right like, I you know, but I mean, but John just,
1: but John you know, seems to take it personally because the end of this movie which is just a giant which I mean is just a big fat promo for John Wick yeah, four yeah. Um, which I'm also never like a huge fan of, but as is, yeah. is he reunites, we haven't talked about Lawrence Fishburne's character um, hardly at all. But he is also someone who is, you know, we thought is dead, is sort of sided with John Wick, and we thought been um, murdered by the adjudicator and their henchmen. Um, you know, they, he got seven slices from a samurai sword, but apparently just got a kind of nasty cut above the eyebrow. Um, so he is still, you know, ruling in his little sewer kingdom, and John Wick finds his way back to him, and they basically kind of agree to like get, you know, revenge together and then they laugh and something and then the, the end credits come up. Yeah,
0: I mean I think it was the,
1: the
0: I, I, I'm i not saying it definitely doesn't make sense. I do think it was probably partly just the the nature of it feeling like a teaser for a sequel that, um, that kind of bothered me or just like I just would have preferred that the movie let me enjoy John Wick 3 for a little bit longer before advertising John Wick 4 and asking me to think about that. That right. said teasing the possibility of Keanu Reeves and Lawrence Fishburne teaming up in John Wick 4 does seem like an effective p- piece of marketing
1: for a movie. I will definitely want to see. All right, yeah, let, and we'll close by asking that. I mean, Matt, Matt, are you in for John Wick 4?
2: I feel like they're running out of glass surfaces to smash, so <laughs> yes. I want to see what they could possibly do to top that uh, Winston's office. Scene.
1: I mean, I think as as with the Fast and Furious series, like they just need to go to space. Next <laughs> is John Wick John Wick
0: and Zero Gravity I would definitely John watch John Wick Chapter
1: 4 Space Bellum um, <laughs> Alright this is Thank you for listening To this spoiler special And if you have any suggestions For future movies Or TV series for us to spoil Email us at Spoilers at slate.com Our uh, engineer has been Merritt Jacob And our producer is Daniel Hewitt
2: Thank you for listening